G'day everyone and welcome back to the Voice of a Veteran podcast. I know it's been a while, but it's been worth the wait because today I have the one and only um, Julia Gillard, the 27th Prime Minister for Australia. Uh, she was our Prime Minister between 2010 and 2013. And since then, um, Julia has gone on to do a lot of very exceptional things and reading through her, her bio at the moment, it's so impressive uh, from sitting on. Uh, she was a director at Beyond Blue and is now the chair of Beyond Blue. Uh, through to very recently, she's been appointed as the chair of Welcome, which is a global charitable, charitable foundation which supports science to solve urgent health challenges. There's a whole raft of um, other honours and accolades, and um, you're an, an assist, you come in as a briefing professor. Um, you do so much in the uh, space for women's leadership, and um, I would probably like to start first and foremost, Julia. Thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with us. How do you like to be known, or how do you like? Um, your name to be um, recognised these days? Oh, I'm not someone who's ever worried too much about all of that, um, but I should first start by saying thank you for having me on the podcast. I mean, I'm, you know, you can shape those things a bit and then it is what it is, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, and so, you know, intellectually, I know that uh, people are always going to uh, put the label around me of, you know, Prime Minister, first female Prime Minister. Uh, that's the thing that they're going to remember about me most. I don't have an expectation uh, that people would necessarily know all of the things that I'm doing now, though from time to time uh, those things do bob up in the news. Uh, I would hope uh, that a bit uh, beyond the formal titles, uh, people might think about me as someone who's been uh, driven by a sense of cause, a sense of purpose across life, who's uh, tried to do some good things. And then I guess it's for others to judge how well or how badly I've achieved those aims. Absolutely. That's brilliant. And I'd say uh, a big part of my personal mantra as well. You know, everything up until now is lived experience and we used to have this saying uh, when we would hand over the uh, commando berets to those who are qualified that it comes with a daily renewable contract and we uh, have to be judged on our actions and attitudes each day forward. But I have to, I actually uh, met you nearly 10 years um, to the month ago, uh, Julia. And uh, one of the most memorable mementos is uh, this is a coin, this is a four star general coin that I was your personal security officer on your first trip to Afghanistan in uh, 2011. And uh, that was actually my first trip to Afghanistan as well. And uh, in a meeting uh, later in one of, one of those afternoons, you met with uh, General Allen, who was the commander of the ISAF, so the forces in Afghanistan. And he, uh, in his handshake departing, gave you his four-star general coin. And on the C-130 flying out of Tarankout back to um, AMAB, Al-Minhad base uh, outside of Dubai, you came and you gave me that four-star general coin, of which uh, I... For one, could not believe that um, because that's that's quite the memento. But two, you know, you were you were that you were the prime minister, and uh, you you showed an element. Um, and I want to go into this a bit later, but in that moment and through a number of moments on that trip, you showed uh, elements of this personality, and particularly this um, leadership and empathy that I never got to see on the TV. And uh, when I sat there with you, and particularly some of the conversations you had first at Tarrant with some of the Australian and US um, senior uh, officers, particularly as we were looking at uh, the resourcing and asset requirements as we were looking to draw down out of Afghanistan. And then those conversations you then took up to General Allen. Uh, I was so impressed. And I have to really, really say that to you because I've said that to so many others about you, but I've never said that to you. And the impact you had on me um, in your personality 
and then also in your professional conduct on that very short trip has left uh, such a lasting impact that looking forward to even just having this conversation with you today, I'm uh, a little bit more nervous than normal. (laughs) Well, I don't want you to be more nervous, but thank you for sharing those memories. And I do remember very clearly all those trips to Afghanistan. I took three in total. And I was always really conscious. I mean, there were... There was some risk going to Afghanistan and I was always really conscious that at the end of the day, it wasn't me that was bearing the burden of that risk. It was people like you who were um, asked to do the security detail. I guess asked isn't the right word. You would have been uh, directed, <laughs> we'll commanded. Um, <laughs> we volunteered. It was, it was a prize. It was yourself and it was the current Governor-General, actually, um, Hurley, uh, on that one yes. trip. It was quite the prize package. He was the Chief of Defence Force back then. Well, I'm glad you remember it <laughs> like that. Um, I've always had this um, feeling that uh, it would not have been a, a prize job. It would have been viewed as um, a risky job and potentially a difficult job because, you know, there you are trying to get someone through. I mean, fortunately, we didn't hit any huge security concerns, but if something big had happened, your job would have been to try and get someone else through and to show um, a great deal of uh, courage and bravery do, do, doing that. So I was always incredibly thankful for that, which would have been uh, the reason that when I was uh, handed uh, the the coin, the memento, uh, that I would have thought it was you who deserved to have it more than me at the end of that trip. And I know how much they mean in the military. I do have a number myself from various uh, other engagements, but I know how much they mean in the military. And so I'm glad you've still got it and that it's a, a very valued possession. Absolutely. It's a pride of place in the middle there and the those, those coins, you know, I don't like to get held up in medals and coins and all sorts of things, but the key part for me is they carry stories like that. And that is uh, one of my most absolute favourite stories. I also remember uh, there's a bit of a prize place when you're flying on those C-130s. There's the, um, the, the cockpit chair, um, there's the comfortable chair up the front. And I remember all of the uh, senior staff trying to take you up there and you went up there and had your initial quick look, but then you came straight back down and you started, you know, getting the others, including your staff to go out there and have a seat and, it's that sort of servant leader um, characteristics that, again, resonate so strongly with someone like myself who went through, you know, ad for an RMC. And in my 16 years in the military, that's all you're ever taught is that sort of purpose and service and others before yourself. And um, I had been in and around other politicians. I'd, I'd been there for issues, including um, a lack of hair dryers and whatnot. And uh, to see you then um, put that, and it, and it wasn't, there were no cameras. Uh, there was no there was nothing to be gained other than showing your true and authentic self. And it really was, uh, really was very unique. And um, again, I don't know if you get enough praise to, to, you, to yourself, but um, that was really very impactful, particularly on a, uh, a gung-ho group of young commandos. It's so fascinating to hear the conversations that came out of just how excellent you were um, in your role and also in your conduct personally uh, throughout that trip. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I mean, for me, I've always, um, you know, I guess in my family home, you know, I came from a very ordinary family, a migrant family, uh, but there was that sense. My parents particularly had a very clear sense that you could get the measure of other people, uh, not so much by how they conducted themselves around the powerful, uh, but how they conducted themselves around ordinary people. You know, so my uh, father in particular was the sort of person who... um, 
You know, he'd always want to have a chat with the uh, shopkeeper, with the person at the checkout, you know. Um, he'd always want to interact with people in those circumstances. And he definitely had this sense that people who, you know, treat others, if he ever saw someone in a coffee shop being rude to a waiter or something like that, he would be incredibly offended. He couldn't believe that people would conduct themselves like that and had a real sense of how wrong it was just because you had this little modicum of power because you were the paying customer to lord it over the person who was bringing your food or your coffee. And I think that stayed with me all of my life. It's shaped my attitudes. Absolutely. That, that great moral upbringing. And in particular, that that trip, you went over there, to, that was your first uh, trip to visit to Afghanistan, and that came on the 29th of October. There were actually three Australians killed, including one of my classmates, Bryce Duffy, and your trip was the uh, week after. And uh, again, sorry, the probably the biggest thing that does resonate with me was when you went and gave an address to the people on the ground um, there at the Poppy's Cafe. And uh, before then, we'd, I'd seen you uh, on TV giving you know, quite prepared speeches and um, in your official political role. And uh, you you spoke <laughs> you spoke without notes and you spoke from the heart and I particularly remember we then got in the car afterwards and you <laughs> you caught me off guard because you asked how was that Heston and I said ma'am that was brilliant I sort of wish we'd heard you speak like that more often and you gave me a bit of an explanation of how um, a lot of the things in Parliament were very prepared speeches and things like that but uh, again um, <laughs> we we saw you as a bit of a, a fish out of water over there with you know roller bags and all these sort of things and next thing you were you were leading from the front so it was really really brilliant to see and really brilliant to see that personality shine through and you can definitely tell it came from a, a brilliant moral upbringing it wasn't put on it was actually the authentic you so anyway what I uh, what I would like to do um, Julius you've mentioned beforehand a bit of your upbringing I'd really like to uh, speak in this podcast about the key transitions in life. So the whole reason why I stepped up Voice of a Veteran and this podcast is um, the, the mental health and suicide crisis has been going on in the veteran community. But in particular, <clears throat> the crisis for me is whenever anyone isn't able to achieve their true potential, you know, that then comes with mental health decline, that comes with external and internal factors. And in my own journey, I found so much of what was holding me back ended up being myself. But in particular, speaking to someone like yourself who's been through such huge transitions in your life, um, you know, transitioning into politics, being the first female prime minister, and then leaving politic and life, politics and life since then, I'm really, really keen to talk to you about a few of those things, like we said before, that sort of real sense of purpose and, and starting with that sort of reason why you wanted to enter into politics. Yeah, I mean, for me, it wasn't um, a blinding flash of light. I, you know, um, I get asked about uh, why I went into politics a fair bit, and I wish I had some dramatic story of, you know, uh, there was one moment when the vision came to me, but unfortunately, it's not like that. Um, it's, you know, more uh, a step and then a step and then a step. And so, you know, I was interested in current affairs in politics because they were discussed in my family home. I went to university. I got involved in a student campaign, you know, pretty modest thing, but a student campaign about federal government funding cutbacks, which I thought were quite wrong. Um, education was very valued in my family home and anything that sort of got in the way of someone's access to education seemed to me to be a morally wrong thing. So I got swept up in that campaign. Campaign. I obviously showed some capacity in it and people started saying, oh, you should run for this or that or the other position in student politics. And I did do that. And then at every stage, you know, I got to be 
um, you know, a local campus official and then a regional official and then a national official. And at every stage I had that sense, um, you know, this is, this is probably it, you know, this is, this is the most I'll do, this is the most I can do, this will be the last thing I do. And then as you did it, you got the sense, no, maybe I can do a bit more and then you take the next step. And really, that's sort of my story of the, the birth of the ambition to go into politics, that it took me a long time to think of myself as the sort of person who could do it. Um, but once I got that sense that I could, I knew I wanted to. And once, you know, I had worked out that this was the pathway, then I got very stubborn and determined about it. So I wasn't, you know, once I made up my mind, I was no longer... Um, you know, sort of uh, wistful or half-hearted about it. I was very, uh, very stubborn and determined about it. And I needed to be like that because between me deciding that I would like to be in the federal parliament and actually getting there, you know, that journey is measured in years and in failed pre-selection attempts and a failed election attempt. So if you'd been faint-hearted, you wouldn't have kept going. Gotcha. And as you're explaining, going up through those sort of levels, those false crests or those false ceilings was part of the realisation that, hey, I can do this, I can keep going, or it's, hey, you know, I can do more? So, you know, was there a bigger piece, you know, you wanted to change the world or was it just also growing in your own confidence and realising what you actually were capable of? I think it's more uh, growing in my own uh, confidence and um, my own ability to fit into those shoes. Um, you know, I, growing up, you know, it's not like um, we new people in politics well or anything like that. I mean, neither of my parents finished secondary school. So it's not like you grew up in an environment where you knew that you could fit in in all of these different pathways in life. I mean, you know, we were taught aim high, you know, think big, think about going into the professions. You know, I was a high school debater, so everybody said to me, you should be a lawyer, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So it wasn't that that there were forces stunting um, my ambition or my sister's ambition, but there's a difference between being told you can do it and then actually getting a mental image of yourself in that place. And, you know, particularly growing up as, you know, a girl, you know, getting a mental image of a woman being in those places was harder than it would have been perhaps for a young boy to get an image of a man being in those places because those, those images were readily available. And so it's partly your own skills, your own confidence, but partly just that sense that this is, you know, this isn't a job for some sort of, you know, superhuman group of people who I haven't met yet, but they must exist and they're the kind of people who go and do this. And then there's ordinary people like me yeah. um, getting a sense that actually um, it is sort of ordinary people who work hard, who think about it, who develop their skills, who end up going into these positions. And once I got all of that together in my head, then I wanted to do it. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's such a such a common story when I speak to you know people who've gone to that elite level like yourself. That so much of that, probably actually to your credit, is um, wondering if you're ready or waiting until you're ready. And then once you actually start sort of chipping away at those things, really appreciating what you can do. And I'm really, I've actually uh, I've watched the uh, the series uh, Misrepresented, and I think it's brilliant. I I learned so much actually, you know, <laughs> in my ignorance going along through that. And as you said beforehand, you know. 
just even having what we call the lead scout, you know, people who've gone before you to actually provide you with a little bit more certainty that it is achievable. I mean, you were truly um, quite the scout yourself and it really helps set a lot of precedents for others to follow. And so much of that comes from um, usually what people do to prepare themselves for that. And I find this, particularly as we talk about you becoming uh, the prime minister of our country and uh, another podcast I did with another politician, the statement was, um, you don't need to be qualified to be a politician. It's one of the only jobs in the country. You don't need to be qualified. But there's so much that goes into um, a person and a professional to be able to uh, perform to that elite level. So I'm so interested in um, your own personal and professional preparation to, to become essentially the prime minister of our country. It, once again, I think that's a, you know that's a journey in stages. And so, you know, if you'd asked me when I was going into the federal parliament, you know, what's the thing you'd like to achieve when you were here? You know, I would have said, look, if I could get to be a minister for education or a minister for workplace relations in a Labor government, that would be fantastic. That would be a dream come true. So I did go in with an ambition about being a government minister. But, you know, firstly, I was just delighted to be there. You know, I'd fought hard um, to come through for pre-selections. I'd uh, run for the election for the seat of Lawler. So you're practising all your skills about community outreach and campaigning and understanding the issues that are on people's minds and thinking about the policy solutions that might make a difference. I'd worked as a high-level political staffer. I was John Brumby's chief of staff when he was leader of the opposition in Victoria, so that had helped my skill base. So by the time I got in there, I felt ready, but there were still lots of things to learn about Parliament, you know, you can watch it from the outside, but to be on the parliamentary floor in question time, in debates, you know, getting familiar with parliamentary committees, with what the Labor caucus does, all of that was a big learning experience. And so I spent that first parliamentary term sort of drinking it all in. And then by the time of the second parliamentary term thought, you know, I was ready to take the step into the shadow ministry. We were still in opposition. And I fortunately did get an opportunity to do that because the leader, Simon Crean, was very interested in renewal and new people coming forward. And so, you you know, learned to do that. And I got ever more senior uh, portfolios as we were in opposition ultimately uh, leading uh, opposition business, which means you lead the parliamentary tactics. And then I was deputy uh, opposition leader before the 2007 election. So you go through all of that. And then to use your terminology, there's a, there's another crest. And the next crest is, you know, getting uh, to uh, be familiar with what it's like to be a government minister and to actually have levers of power in your hand. And I did have that experience as Deputy Prime Minister. I had a number of experiences acting as Prime Minister whilst Kevin went to do overseas work. And so by the time I became Prime Minister, whilst it was still a jump, it wasn't a jump from the ground to the mountaintop. You'd already been sort of, you know, getting your way up there. Gotcha. So there's a lot of a lot of on-the-job training. I'm just intrigued. Is there any actual, like, formalised training along the way? Because I've... I've I've only had a, a, some brief insights this last year and, you know, all of it, every politician essentially has its own, their own small team of staff. So they're, they're seen as a small team leadership role through to ministers have their growing staff. And then as you go up and up and up, that team gets bigger. So there's a lot of that other job training, which can only sort of get from within the politics itself. But there's also this sort of 
leadership role and this management role. I'm sort of intrigued to see you've obviously learned a lot of that along the way and you speak a lot to that very eloquently and very uh, in-depth and I've listened to a lot of that at the moment. I'm just sort of intrigued as to is that is that all just through your own lived experience or did you do professional leadership study along the way? Did the party develop you in that way? There is surprisingly little formal training, actually far too little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, can't, um, I can't hand on heart say uh, it's still definitely like this because there may have been some things introduced since I've left the parliament that I'm not aware of. But That's Just for you, um, for you leading up to being Prime Minister, yeah. Yeah, surprisingly little. Uh, no, um, you know, the, the the party did, I mean, they're, the party did media training and things like that um, uh, to help you, uh, you know, so as a, as a candidate and then as a new backbencher, uh, there are training things that are done. So the party did some um, candidate training, some media training, but that was really about you as a politician and how you interacted with the world and your community. The parliament uh, had a sort of new members training course that we all went on in mixed groups. So they would put the political parties together and you'd go on the training courses together, which was good, I think, to build at least some understanding across the parliament. Um, So that happened, but no ongoing um, access to training, no real training about what it means to be an administrator, a manager, a leader of a team um, that you just learned organically or you didn't. Um, And unfortunately, I think politics shows uh, many people don't uh, learn it on the job or don't learn it well enough and make hideous errors as a result. I find it it so fascinating from a, a personal side of the house because when I first joined the military 2003, I spent the first first four years just down the road, three years at the uh, Australian Defence Force Academy, and then one year at the Royal Military College. So I had to undertake four years worth of professional officer training, which included so much um, leadership and management um, and or authority responsibility training before we were even allowed to have our you know first uh, group, our first platoon. And uh, while I absolutely love the way in which Parliament is designed to represent all Australians, uh, I would love to go in there tomorrow with a. I finished the last year of my career running the special forces selection course for commandos. And you can imagine I had an amazing team that included so many um, fantastic contractors, some of which currently work with the uh, the Australian Institute of Sport and support of the um, athletes going over for the Olympics. And just to be able to go in there and actually better support um, some of the the current and future generations of politicians with some of this stuff that it's hard. If you know, you, I love that you said you, you got the media training because it seems like that's what a lot of the <laughs> primary focus is. But it's it's literally hard to be able to do all of this specialist skill set you're required to do. And then also, you know, you have your team and you're within an environment where, from what I can understand, it's not exactly always the best team environment. There are individual ambitions in there. And my ignorance going into this place thinking, you know, a party of, you know, 60 sitting members, you know, they're all getting together and having discussions sometimes, but... <laughs> That's not always the case, yeah. No, uh, sometimes. uh, Sometimes it's like that and sometimes it's not. And, I mean, you would have had this experience doing uh, commando selection. Uh, There's a lot of times that you end up having to, you know, break people's hearts. You would have had to have said to you know, young people who were absolutely desperate to be um, selected that I'm sorry, but you haven't made the grade. And the more senior you get in politics, actually, the 
more of that hard stuff you do. You know, as Prime Minister, one of the things you do is you assemble the ministerial team and more people want to be ministers than are going to end up getting an opportunity and so you end up disappointing people. Uh, the, you know, problems that come to you that end up on your desk are the too hard basket. You know, no one comes in with, Prime Minister, here's a blindingly easy decision, why don't you make this one? You know, if it's blindingly easy, then someone else has made it 10 steps before it ever got anywhere near the Prime Minister, uh, the only ones that actually get in the door are the ones that are really hard and where you'll be, um, you know, uh, creating, uh, you know, happiness for some because they're pleased with the decision, but probably uh, going to be disappointing others. And you're not given any uh, training in managing that either. That's all organically done, whereas I, I guess you were prepared for all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Came through quite the professional system. And that's where I really do actually uh, sympathise <laughs> with just actually appreciating how difficult that is. And I'm very keen to sort of touch on and better understand if it was a consideration of yourself, like your own support network, you know, but mental health and awareness of mental health. I like to call it mental fitness. You know, like I'll call this session with you here today is actually my mental fitness session. I think we save these things up too much, but what we don't realise is just like exercising or doing push-ups. you know, our mental health is real and needs to be supported and um, addressed and I'm very keen particularly during that situation where you're learning so much on the go you're promoting up the ranks in authority and responsibility and all these other interesting dynamics uh, how did you go about looking after yourself or how did you what, what was your uh, approach to looking after yourself was it a priority or did you realize it when did you realize yeah I did realize uh, that it had to be a priority you know in that first um first parliamentary term so you know you're the bright-eyed new backbencher and you you want to do everything and you want to go to everything in your electorate and you want to volunteer for every committee and you want to run around the nation uh, doing all of the things associated with the committee and then you'd you know look down at your diary and realize that you'd worked you know 40 50 days straight um, and you ultimately had to say to yourself and I did say to myself that you know this is you know, something I want to do for years, not for three years and then fall over exhausted. This is something I want to do for years. And as hard as it's going to be, I need to think about um, how I'm going to stay fit, healthy, you know, in, in the right zone in a mental wellness sense, uh, mental fitness sense, uh, to, to do my best at this. And I you know, I think for me, some of that was intuitive. I think, you know, even measuring uh, this journey, I mean, I first went into Parliament in the, you know, uh, 1990s, the late 1990s, the dialogue between now and then about mental health has just, you know, exploded. There are so many resources around now that you could pull into this sort of uh, personal uh, setting of how you're going to live, which weren't available then. So it was a more intuitive process. But I always got it that if I didn't nurture uh, some of the relationships that were closest to me, you know, family and friends, if I didn't have that support base, uh, if I sort of allowed that to kind of wither or die, that would be a huge problem. Mm -hmm. I always got it that if I didn't have enough um, sleep, enough rest and recovery, that that would end badly <laughs> and that I did need, you know, 
just decompression, um, you know, personal time where you would maintain uh, some physical fitness and where you would do things that just gave you a bit of joy and a bit of relief. And for me, that's things like reading books. You know, I like to um, read novels and stuff like that. And so, you know, you try and get a little bit of that into your diary and to learn the tricks of going from full speed ahead to dead stop as quickly as possible to manage those transitions. Yeah, I could particularly, um, I would love to have a bit more uh, conversation about that in particular, you know, living such a high uh, impact public life. You know, I've just only had some little glimpses through this Royal Commission period and whatnot. And um, sometimes in my own journey, I've actually found some of the hardest times to be when all of a sudden it goes quiet, when there's no one calling, when there's no one asking for for something I'm sure it was probably quite different for you where there were the times to breathe, but um, you know, particularly those sort of quiet times, unless we've got that support network established around us, it's very easy for us to sort of you know start identifying a few ceilings or a few false crests that we uh, didn't see before. And you know, do, do you, even when you were prime minister, Julie, did you have anyone sort of helping you with things like fitness and nutrition, with um, you know these things that go into this holistic sort of health and wellness that we know so much about now? I had a personal trainer who would come to the lodge and we would do uh, yoga and exercises together, a wonderful woman called Tanya. uh, And she, um, yeah, she was, you know, I mean, a great uh, fitness trainer in the physical sense, but also someone to have someone from the outside world to have a conversation with about how you were thinking and feeling. And so that was a lot of relief. Uh, So she, uh, she was a great support to me. Um, On nutrition, no, (laughs) but uh, I guess I, you know, sort of already kind of had the basics in my mind about what it is to eat well and you know you do end up I mean it's actually a weird world really because um, there are lots of times as a politician you really don't make any of your own food choices because you're you know you're the speaker at a dinner or you're visiting the local um, you know aged care facility and they're putting on a morning tea for you and so you end up you know, eating whatever people are giving you rather than making big choices about what do I want to eat that would be best for my body. Uh, But when I could make those decisions, I think I knew enough uh, about nutrition to make some good decisions. It's Hopefully. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you've you've done well and you're radiating on the other side of this camera, so you obviously keep doing well. A bit of junk food got eaten too. I don't want to uh, paint the the past uh, too glamorously. There were plenty of times we were in the prime ministerial office eating chips and stuff like that, let me assure you. (laughs) A bit of the the sugar or salt salt rush to help you out with some of those late nights. It's, it's just right. fascinating for me, you know, how much effort we put into elite athletes and essentially, you know, you guys up there were making decisions uh, about nations and, and global decisions and, you know, again, I like to take that same team in there and help set people up with, you know, personal trainers that become therapists as, as well through to, you know, that, um, that nutrition routine, absolutely. Anyway. Um, <laughs> it, it, it would be wonderful to see. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a revolution. <laughs> As you know, particularly one of the most sedentary jobs up there during those sitting weeks from some of those, you know, what some of them nearly go to bloody midnight when there's a lot of debate or, um, well, not boulder dashing, what do they call it when you just keep talking to where the time's <laughs> going? Uh, maybe it should be called boulder dashing, oh. but uh, uh, the term is filibuster, but, uh, <laughs> but I quite like boulder dash. <laughs> I, remember, 
I remember the first when we were looking to get this motion for the Royal Commission pass through. I remember one of Jackie Lambie's staff came through and was like, "No, they're they're filibusting for the rest of the day." And like, "What is this filibusting? Like, oh, they're just going to fill up the time." I was like, "They're allowed to do that?" It's like, "Yes, it's a tactic." Like, who came up with that bloody word? Anyway, no, I digress. Um, so, you, you, I love to I love to get this narrative. Your transition into politics, you know, you were definitely there, filled with a sense of purpose. That was the impact you could have, and along the way, you've really had to to learn a lot <laughs> on the job personally and professionally. But the, the biggest transition in life and the most public transition in life that you've had um, that I'd love to dive into is that transition out of being Prime Minister that obviously did not come um, at your own, a time of your own choosing. And for many um, right across the country, uh, you know, particularly I really want to push this towards the, um, the mental health and uh, wellness and fitness takeaways. Uh, I'd really love to talk to you about what that was like for you personally and sort of what you went through when we've spoken about some of these regimes and structures and support networks you had in place and whether you found those um, adequate or how you had to pivot personally and professionally and what you've learned from that subsequently. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, I mean, obviously it was an incredibly difficult time. I mean, um, immediately after uh I mean, immediately after losing, we went and had a very hefty drink, if the truth be told. Um, we had uh, lots, of, lots of people uh, swamped to the lodge and uh, uh, sort of drink and commiserate uh, into the night. Uh, but And then, you know, all had to go to Parliament the next day. Uh, but, you know, as the transition moved on, I was... Very keen, you know, you have a team that's really, really close to you who's also bearing the shock and the hurt. I was very keen that that team, both political staff but also uh, parliamentarians who'd been very close to me, uh, didn't didn't take on the burden of my leaving, that they needed to, you know, get on and make choices about what was best for them uh, and not carry that with them. And some of them had to make very immediate choices. I mean, would they uh, go and work on Kevin's team as he came back as Prime Minister? And I was always very keen to say to people, you know, you, you've got to make whatever you feel inside you, uh, but don't make this decision for me. Don't have a sense that you've got to uh, spurn an opportunity, otherwise that's not being loyal to me. You know, you do what's best for you. So there was a sort of a bit of a pastoral care element that kind of sustained me a bit, but there was also a lot of sadness in, in the leave-taking because there's lots of people who are in your world as Prime Minister who will probably go on to serve the next Prime Minister, you know, the um, uh, police officers that do the protection work when you're in Australia, who you're with all day, every day, you get very close to the staff at the lodge who you've basically lived alongside, the uh, staff in Parliament House, the senior public servants that you've spent all of these intense hours with. And so there was a lot of leave-taking and once that had been done, I felt, you know, I went home to Altona. Um, Tim and I went back to our home in Altona and I just needed to be in my own space, basically incredibly quiet. Um, you know, one of the things that it felt with the leave-taking is people you know, people completely lovely and very upset on your behalf, which is generous of them. But if you do it 
time after time after time, that kind of leave taking, you you start to get the sense that you're living through your own funeral. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, I can't do this continuously. Uh, and so I had to just have a period of quiet time. And the rhythm of sort of politics was going to give me a period of quiet time as well because uh, there was the election campaign and I knew if I was seen anywhere during the election campaign, the media would have beaten that up, um, you know, to use it as a distraction from the campaign Kevin was running. So I didn't want any of that to happen. So I just literally stayed in Altona, snuck out for walks, very quiet. And it's in that period that the sort of amount of adrenaline and stress and tension that you've been carrying really comes home to you. It's that, I mean, I think it's a pretty common phenomenon and I think a lot of people would experience it. You know, they, um, you know, work work like a demon all year, get to their Christmas holidays, think this is going to be fantastic. And then the second day of your Christmas holidays, you wake up with a sore throat and it's kind of your body getting your back for that year yeah. that you've, you know, flogged it. Um, well, I, I had that sort of times a thousand. So honestly, I think every day of those, uh, you know, weeks, uh, I would have woken up saying to myself, oh, my shoulder hurts. Oh, you know, my, my throat's a bit sore. Oh, I feel like I've got a bit of a headache. You know, it was just it, like the physical outworking of the tension. Um, uh, it was incredible, really. And so, uh, you know, you needed to physically recover and then you needed to sort of psychologically recover. And for me, that was, you know, just I needed absolute quiet, and then out of that absolute quiet, I then moved into the sort of decision-making cycle of what do I absolutely know I want to do next and what do I absolutely know I don't want to do and then how long can I live with the shades of grey about what might be in the middle. Um, so I made some decisions about things I didn't want to do, some things about dis uh, that I did, and then, you know, over the year year or so that followed, um, year and a bit, went about shaping my new life. And obviously, uh, opportunities have come to me across the years that have followed. It's fascinating. Particularly, you're talking about the, the body ailments. It's so interesting, the effect that stress and cortisol and all that can have on you and that. But what it sounded like, you essentially went and self-isolated, went out for walks, <laughs> kept below the... Yeah, I, below I the did. Radar. Yeah, had your own lockdown. I, I, if uh, if Daniel Andrews had been articulating COVID rules back then, I would have been abiding by them. I wouldn't have been more than five k's from my home, that's uh, for sure. <laughs> what I particularly love about that story, Julie, is you talk about those first elements of um, your experience actually about others and about all those in your immediate team um, that you've had those personal connection with and uh, essentially were sort of directly or indirectly a huge part of your daily support network. And while they're not there, you know, giving you advice, they're there providing you with some form of comfort and some part of your identity. And a huge part of that transition for being Prime Minister is, you know, you were Prime Minister Julia Gillard and now you're back to being Julia Gillard. And I'm so intrigued to ask more on that potential loss of identity or um, what you sort of went through in this, uh, what so many others do and so many others fail at, this reinvention place after you've sort of gone into your isolation and then contemplating you know, who you are or what you are next or whether you already had that to assist you in that process moving forward? Yeah, I, I think I had 
some advantages coming to this task of, of reinventing? I mean, number one, I, I hadn't set out as a five-year-old to be Prime Minister. So it wasn't like, you know, my whole identity had been developed around I must have this top job. So I think some people uh, live with the burden of that. They've set that aspiration very, very early and, you know, either don't achieve it because uh, not many people get to become Prime Minister or uh, do achieve it and when they lose it, then that's a very hard knock. I, I didn't have that same sense about it. And I always had this sense as Prime Minister that you, you know, you, you knew you were the Prime Minister, you had all of the trappings that come with being Prime Minister, you had all of the responsibilities that come with being Prime Minister. But I also didn't want to um, wear that heavily. You know, I wanted to interact with people as naturally as I could despite all of that. And so the putting of the formalities aside, I think, didn't therefore cost me as much as it might have cost others who relied on those formalities more to shape how they interacted with the world. Um, and I don't know the answer to this. I really don't. It's just something I muse on. But um, being the only woman to do the job, you know, I'm not a I'm not a believer that men and women's brains are wired differently. I think a lot of that, you know, is uh, just pop science and it's not true. But we're certainly socialised differently. And, you know, from the earliest days, I think women are socialised uh, more to, uh, you know, not, not put their whole identities on ambition. If anything, we tend to teach girls that ambition, you know, being too nakedly ambitious is not a good thing for a girl to be, and I think we should stop doing that. But one of the things from female socialisation with the expectation you'll put the needs of others before the needs of self, I think maybe when you come to some of these big life transitions, there's a bit less sort of capital E ego in it than there is for men who may well have been socialised into, you know, if you don't achieve, then, you know, that is not acquitting an appropriate definition of manhood. Manhood is defined around achievement. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I love everything you've just said <laughs> then. And particularly, you know, not separating identity from position or title. Um, you know, that's something that so many of us struggle with. That's something I personally struggle with, you know, um, and a really huge sort of golden nugget you said there beforehand was that whole not having your identity already premeditated affixed to being prime minister. And in particular, in you know, sort of the, the, the veteran context, just to provide sort of data to really reinforce that, um, that, that statement and that realisation is that one of the largest demographics of mental health decline and suicide is actually some of those people who um, end up going through the basic training or all the initial training during defence and either um, don't meet the requirements or uh, medically withdrawn due to injury. And you can potentially imagine people like, you know, in their 17, 18, 19, you know, their first sort of step out of schooling and into adulthood and they've had this um, focus on this and it was already derivative of their um, identity. You know, they're telling people, I'm going to go join the military and all this. And then the first real adult identity that fixed themselves to emotionally and mentally is then removed from them. Um, and they're found to be either inadequate or just unable to achieve that. And that's really that critical period where we just find so many of our um, suicide areas spiking and in particular so much of that mental health decline when it's not realised. So 
what you were saying there is you've sort of always been able to have essentially a, a higher purpose by the sounds of it. There's quite this sort of acts of service. And uh, have you have you read the book, the, the Love Languages, by any chance? No, I haven't. No, I'll have to put it on the list. It's good. It's a just a very, a very quick vignette. Uh, I, I got introduced to it by a, um, a fantastic high performance coach we had um, who came in and gave us some briefings. Uh, a female, she was fantastic um, during my time at the commandos and replaced the word love with the word value. And there's basically five different languages that we um, show value and receive value. For instance, um, I show value through acts of service. I love doing things for people. And one thing in particular that COVID sort of taught me was actually that my Love language, the way I receive love, is actually just quality time. People who like to be around me without having to do things. Whereas previously, I thought it was words of affirmation. I thought I needed to hear from people. But um, you know, sort of really what you've demonstrated there is first and foremost, you know, you really um, show and feel value through uh, what you can do for others in particular, but also not being wedded to only being able to do that based on a position or a profile or a title that you had. And I think that's really um bears itself in exactly what you're doing now. Like I said, there's a couple of paragraphs on my screen of all the ways you've gone on to still achieve amazing things. And in particular, this is why I find your position um, so fascinating because I have spoken to others who have um, gone from elite level of support, so elite levels of sport, elite levels of corporate, elite levels of politics themselves, and sort of find themselves still looking back and wishing and wondering what was and when to get back in the game, whereas you've still gone on to make your impact and make a change on the world. So in particular, it's so fascinating how, how you've gone on to do that and where that sort of mental resolve and purpose came from and where um, in particular that community around you, where that changed, what, what those sort of the building blocks were that you could give advice to those listening to this, going through the smallest through to the largest transitions in their life from the lessons that you've learned through lived experience. Yeah, I... I think one thing I'd certainly say, and, you know, when I talked about that period in Altona where I decided I did want to do some things and I knew I did want to pursue uh, causes that, you know, had been close to my heart, particularly education, and by February of the next year I was being asked to become the chair of the Global Partnership for Education. I knew I wanted to write, um, that I wanted to write a book about my time in politics and I knew I wanted to do that quite quickly because I, I thought it would be best to get it down as a, you know, uh, contemporaneous or as near as possible contemporaneous account. Mm -hmm. But as important as it was to shape some of those things, the, the profound decision I think I made in that period was what I was not going to do and I decided then very clear line that what I wasn't going to do is I wasn't going to um, involve myself any longer in Australian domestic politics. So I wanted to, you know, put a kind of full stop. Um, so during the period of the election campaign, I did write uh, a piece about politics and the future of politics uh, for the future of Labor, which was published after the election. And having done that, then obviously there were some political comments in the book, but I decided very strongly that I wouldn't be popping up in the day-to-day -day domestic political debate. And I made that decision because I thought it was right for my political party not to have a sort of former prime minister looming up, um, you know, saying you should be doing X or Y or Z. That was for the people who were in the seats, you know, holding the responsibilities at that moment, um, you know, so for uh, Albo and the team now. But 
I also knew it would be better for me uh, that you, you know, you put in a kind of clean break with the past. Yep. And one of the things that informed that choice for me is when I was a lawyer all those years ago, I used to do employment law, and you would literally have people come in with, you know, folders and booklets that they'd written that they were carrying, they'd stagger into your office, you know, put it on your desk and say, oh, look, you know, I had this big employment dispute. It started 15 years ago and it was really unfair. And then they'd tell you about it. And maybe it had been really unfair, but, you know, often things aren't fixable, even with legal solutions. There wasn't a legal solution and they'd spent the 15 years obsessing about it. And you were there to give them legal advice, but what you really wanted to say was, you know what you should do? You should take that, take it home, put it, you know, make a little fire outside, burn it, um, and, uh, you know, obviously safely, uh, burn it all and just put it out of your head and get on uh, with the rest, the rest of your life because you could be obsessing about this for the next 30 or 40 years or you could go on and happily live the next bit of your life. And so I guess in that quiet time, you know, you, you end up sort of staring, staring at these things and staring at what you've um, told others. And it was time to take some of my own advice. Um, and so that has been a lot better for me to just, you know, um, I, I do reflect back personally, but I don't get out there in the public domain. And that means that I look at what I'm doing now and I look ahead. Yeah, well, as you would know, uh, a lot of that comes from that trauma like you're saying that that gentleman you could imagine the amount of you know, even vietnam veterans through to um, veterans much older than me who've carried these these traumas through them to now and you have to go back and sort of dig these up and go through that grieving process and it's so it's so fascinating that you have you know gone forward with such dignity um, and i really do respect your decision to not be popping up as you say Whereas at the same time, you know, even watching you on that documentary and hearing how articulate you are and seeing your work around the place, you know, it's not like you're deliberately being silent. You're just really focusing on, you know, what what you can do, what only you can do right here and now. And um, do you still, um, we have this saying of, you know, I know myself, you know, looking back at how some of the younger officers and all this are trained these days, I find it very hard sitting on the sideline. I find it very hard going from being a player to sitting on the sideline. And that's not like, you know, I can do it better. You Sometimes you just want to get there and help. And, um, you know, that sometimes the hardest part is, like you said, um, identifying what you're not going to do as opposed to what you want to do. And how did you, how did you deal with that personally? Yeah, I, I look, you know, there are uh, sometimes I'd have to say I'm wandering around muttering. <laughs> Good. I'll, I'll see something on TV and I'll be muttering to myself <laughs> about uh, what uh, what the government should be doing or what the Labor opposition should be doing. So, uh, yes, uh, that does happen. <laughs> Uh, but I, I don't, uh, I don't take my uh, muttering uh, apart from people, obviously, you know, looking at me oddly if you're talking to yourself. Um, but uh, I don't take that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't take it further. And I look, I'm still in contact with uh, political colleagues, but. I work on the basis, you know, they know where I am. Uh, if uh, they uh, want to pick my brains, they want some advice, they've got the phone number, they'll pick up the phone. Uh, that's the better way round than uh, me either speaking publicly or me ringing in saying you haven't thought about X or you should be doing Y. And I also know, you know, it's 
even if you uh, read the media and all the rest of it, it is still hard to see political problems from all angles unless you're actually in the middle of it. Uh, and so in some ways, the best uh, advice I can give if people seek it is not what you should do about today's news story. Um, it's the, um, the, the perspective that comes with being, you know, 20 steps back, 30 steps back, you know, so you, you've still got the political analytical skills, but you're not right in the middle of it. And sometimes that enables you to see the bigger picture in a way that it's harder for the day-to-day professionals who are right in the, the mix of it. Um, and so if people ring me, that's the kind of conversation I tend to have. That's brilliant. Very hard to step out of that anxiety circle these days, isn't it? And actually get a bit of perspective. What is your purpose these days, Julia? What drives you and what is driving you tomorrow? Uh, well, I think I'm still a cause-driven person. So uh, my uh, causes continue to be uh, mental health, of course, with Beyond Blue, uh, still very driven by what I would call the politics of opportunity, that artificial things, discriminatory things do not hold people back. And that is what has informed my work in education and my work on women's leadership. And in this world where we can have odd debates about whether you can pick your own facts um, and we're having some of those debates uh, in the context of the pandemic, I'm very attracted to what I'm doing now at Welcome, which is uh, being an advocate for science and the role it can play in informing uh, how we make decisions to solve some of the biggest problems in our world. And Welcome strategy is about discovery science, but it's also about infectious diseases, mental health and climate change. And if you had to band together, you know, three big issues of our age, then I think they're the three big ones for right now. And, of course, they're interrelated, you know, mental health, infectious diseases, the pandemic, all of these things go hand in hand. Absolutely. You don't like uh, picking up small causes, do you? <laughs> No, uh, still, still, and still doing uh, uh, th things that I'm passionate about. And look, I like to write, and that explains why I did the book last year on women and leadership. And um, I don't have any contemporary plans to write, but I'm not uh, ruling it out for the future either. I might write again. Gotcha, good. What about your own support network? You know, outside of causes and outside of, um, you know, I can, I, I know as well how great writing can be. And, um, I'm still yet to read all of your work, but it's on the list. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm the worst reader in the world for concentration. But what do you do as far as your own um, personal routine outside of, again, professional causes and also the support network you have around you and how that sort of changes and transitions still or is it, or is it firmly set? It's um, still it's still much the same in the sense I rely profoundly on my family and friends uh, because I travel, you know, in the days you could travel, uh, I travelled very extensively pre-COVID um, and, you know, my life is now uh, partly London, partly Australia and I set up this life when you could quickly get between the two on a plane. Obviously, that's uh, not the world we live in now. No, quickly getting between the two on a plane. Um, what's that? What that has meant is, you know, I'm reliant on 
family and friends in more than one place. So I'm in the happy situation where I've got some uh, truly great friendships uh, here in London, which are very important to me, uh, as well as all of my family and friends back home. Uh, and then, you know, just getting balance as best as I can uh, in, into my life. And that's easier for me now. I mean, I don't, I, th I think I still work hard, but it's not the sheer relentlessness that politics was. So carving out time to, you know, do things that I find restorative, you know, reading, um, uh, you know, visiting art galleries, going to the theatre, things like that when I can, you know, walking uh, outside. Uh, last week I did some walks in Wales. Um, I find those sorts of things, you know, very uh, restorative and, you know, just making sure that I sleep well and eat well. Absolutely. And doing, and doing lots of your own podcasts. And doing lots of my own podcasts. I, I think it's, um, I, I really enjoy, I enjoy recording them um, and I enjoy listening to them. I've become quite a podcast and audio book person as I uh, wander around uh, walking in London frequently listening to something. And there's a, you know, there's real intimacy, I think, about uh, listening into other people's conversations that podcasting gives you. Absolutely. And your podcast is called A Podcast of One's Own, and that's in your role as the chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. And uh, again, I highly recommend that to anyone listening, you know, someone who's been uh, professionally trained and educated and continuously in leadership. You know, there's the, the first rule of leadership is you, you're never too old to learn. There's never enough that you can't learn. And it's been really fascinating hearing that. And even doing some of these podcasts myself, um, just the conversations you have and some of the information that you're able to communicate or even realise that's in there, just having these conversations. I'm really, really impressed and I could just imagine how much some of that and even just some of the, the frank and open and authentic conversations you're having uh, on your podcast is brilliant. A lot of people would expect someone to be, um, you know, sort of that air of authority or at least trying to maintain some form of um, uh I don't know, inauthenticity, I call it. I don't know why people try and do it, but you really get in there for some of those conversations. So I really uh, commend you on that and, and encourage others who are listening to this to have a listen to it, a, a podcast of one's own. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, one of the – I've really enjoyed turning the tables and being interviewer, having been someone who's been interviewed so much. <laughs> and I actually think – and you're very good at it. I think good podcasting is as much about the quality of um, – uh, leaving the silence as it is about asking the questions, you know, giving your guests as much scope as they need. Uh, that's what, at the end of the day, makes it a podcast that takes you to another level because people have got the space to have the deeper conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And just in that theme of leadership and everything you continue to learn, any key lessons, key takeaways that you've learned from being the highest level of leader to now, um, what I say, the art of being a great leader is knowing how to be a great follower as well. In your own lived experience, again, I, I bang on about these things, but very rarely do we get to hear it from someone like yourself, what you've learned and what you would tell young leaders of all uh, ages, genders and everything else in between. Yeah, I, I think even from my earliest days, I knew that uh, being clear about your own sense of purpose was a key, that, you know, in a crowded, contested world where things press in on you unless you were very clear about your true north, you'd get buffeted off course very easily. So I talk to young people about that, about their sense of purpose, about developing it, not just intuiting it, but actually getting out a sheet of paper, writing it down, polishing it uh, so that you've really got clarity around what's driving you. 
what became increasingly clear to me across the journey is how much of a sense of self you've got to have. You know, you've got to um, know a lot about yourself, your strengths and weaknesses, um, but you've also uh, got to uh, be, you know, prepared to listen to constructive criticism from others, uh, but uh, not take all of it on board if it's just kind of flibbity gibbet stuff. Um, and obviously, we're going we're gonna to yeah. take that flibbity gibbet. I like that. Flibbity gibbet. Yeah. Uh, a lot of politics brings you the flibbity gibbet stuff. <laughs> okay. uh, and um, you know, then the thing I've learned along the way is don't don't sweat the small stuff. I used to be the complete. Um, perfectionist about everything um, and you get to the stage where you know you know what the world won't end if you um, uh, you know miss that train uh, get somewhere a little bit late uh, don't do that email until tomorrow um, you can give yourself a little bit of uh, respite when you need all right very very great words thank you for that particularly so much of that comes down to this you know people harp on about authenticity and vulnerability and particularly that, you know, sense of self, understanding who you really are um, and not being able to be so impacted by what others think. Where did, where did that come from for, from for you? Um, look, I, I think it's, it's more in the zone of uh, a muscle rather than an inherent trait. I think I've, uh, you know, I think I was someone who, in my earliest days, you know, if I go back to school and that kind of stuff would have been very, very sensitive to the criticism of, of others. Uh, and then, you know, as I moved into this more publicly exposed world, you know, you did have to get, I mean, people talk about it as a thicker skin, but um, I think it's actually more discernment about what matters and you really need to listen to and could make a big impact and is a criticism with truth at its heart versus what's sort of capricious and cruel and you just can't let get in your head. Yeah, absolutely. Actually appreciating first and foremost, knowing what the truth is inside you. So it's not a thicker skin. It's sort of that water off a duck's back, isn't it? Yes, that's right. That's right. Water off a duck's back, I think is right. You, you just, um, you, you you can't, I mean, and you don't have to be that publicly exposed these days for, uh, you know, to see really bad things about yourself. Lots of people uh, would see that on social media. Uh, lots of young people would, lots of young women in particular uh, would see horrible things about themselves on social media. And you do have to, uh, you know, nurture a sense of self, which enables you to view that as water off a duck's back and not take it all in. Absolutely. The, the social media piece, I have this sort of saying, it's, it's just this entire element for inauthenticity to creep in. You know, we compare ourselves to our last post, to our last stories, much like some people compare themselves to their last position or their last last title. It's so easy to build that daily inauthenticity. But it's just brilliant here sitting and, and talking to you and hearing that inner radiance that you definitely know your sense of self and uh, particularly your work now uh, with Beyond Blue. I'd love to hear more about that and particularly how that's impacted you and how you continue um, to, to look at mental health and the importance in this space and in every Australian space, because I really feel that uh, the true pandemic we're about to face is the, the mental health decline. Um, that is the, the slow onset post uh, this sort of physical pandemic and the importance of that. And also some of the work that Beyond Blue is doing, we see a lot of it in the media, but not, not, not the, excuse me, not a lot of people actually truly know what is going on. And now you're the chair. It'd be great to hear it from, um, you yourself. Yeah, sure. I mean, this has been 
an extraordinary time for everyone, but also an extraordinary time for Beyond Blue. So uh, literally the Beyond Blue staff, um, many of them cancelled their Christmas holidays in the summer between 2019 and 2020 because of the bushfires and the mental health load that came with that and, you know, calls flooding into our support service and people needing assistance. And then uh, as that was starting to ease and people were like, okay, we can take a breath now, uh, we moved into the pandemic and uh, the Beyond Blue statistics just show incredibly clearly if you compare, you know, the relevant month, you know, August or whatever with the August before the pandemic, uh, we'll see, um, you know, calls to our support service are routinely up, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80%, the number of people who are engaging online in our chat forums who are looking for help. Um, and it's very correlated with lockdowns and the anxiety that comes with lockdowns. And so we've needed to mobilise to serve all of that. But at the same time, we haven't wanted to down tools on some of the longer range projects that have been driving us. Uh, one of those is making sure that Australia-wide uh, there is a service that we um, innovated around and helped design and, and first trialled and evaluated called The Way Back. So if someone has tried to take their life and gone to a hospital emergency department, they're not discharged into nothing. Uh, they're discharged into a system of support uh, that helps them get through. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, something we call new access, which is a low intensity coaching model for people who are first getting into trouble. Uh, we've wanted to upscale those. So we've been continuing to do that. And we're continuing to do a big uh, refresh of how we do our digital offerings to make sure that we're always at the forefront using the best of this technology. And we've been engaging in the big debates with uh, state and federal governments about the future of the mental health system. Uh, one thing we'll certainly be seeing in that future, I think, is more telehealth. Uh, we were advocating for telehealth for forever. Uh, so people in areas without mental health professionals could still get services. And somehow that was impossible, impossible, impossible. And then come the pandemic, guess what? It's possible. Uh, so uh, we want to take the best of that with us. But we also want to see a more profound uh, restructuring of the way federal and state governments uh, engage with mental health provision because there's lots of underservicing and gaps and holes. Uh, so they're all of the things that we're doing now. Uh, Georgie Harmon, our CEO and the team at Beyond Blue, just do a remarkable job. And given uh, our staff are Melbourne-based and therefore have personally lived through the long Melbourne lockdowns, many of them have got, uh, you know, young kids, so homeschooling, all the rest of it's been part of their world. They've done incredible things. Wow, that is very incredible how much this has been covered there. And like I said, it's such an important time and I take my hat off to yourself and your team there and uh, thanks from us and in particular for great to hear you know people like yourselves and the team covering off on all those great and large and strategic and operational levels and I sort of have this bit of a uh, bit of this hypothesis myself whereby um, particularly working with so many veterans over the last year in particular uh, who have um, gone to and contemplated or, or engaged with suicidal behavior so much of their pathway back has been connecting them um, back with that community on the ground, connecting them just back with that 
social interaction, actually establishing relationships with connection, and particularly the actual isolation that has come with this sort of pandemic has really been a large part of that um, issues. We've really found so many people, again, I'm, I'm on telehealth uh, every second week with my psychologist. It's fantastic, but also just becoming so reliant on um, just technology being our connection. And when we're able to really look to also integrate getting people together, uh, not clinically, but just communities, you know, like we did back as kids, like we did back in our groups, um, you know, while working from home is great, but actually getting in and having some form of human intimacy um, at, a, at, a, at a connection level is sort of so important. And I'd be interested to see if you guys have had sort of any reflections of that yourselves. I mean, I'm sure the Melbourne crew knows that themselves through living through it, but um, particularly in the veteran space, we found it to be just, just sometimes for those who aren't responding clinically, just getting back and around people who they can feel vulnerable around and feel connection around has been some of the best therapy for them. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot at Beyond Blue is how we think about the mental health workforce. And I think most people would think to themselves, oh, mental health workforce, that'd be psychiatrists and psychologists and psychiatric nurses. And, and of course, it's all of that. And we love our clinicians and we need our clinicians. Uh, but increasingly, it's clear that people are looking for um, new and different um, supports. So the importance of peer-to-peer uh, coaching and mentoring, particularly access to someone with lived experience, you know, who's been through it themselves, that can just mean so much to people. Um, and we're thinking about how, you know, Australia could restructure its mental health workforce so that more of that was available for people. So you got access to the right person at the right time, but the right person at the right time might not be a clinician. Uh, so I agree with you on all of that. I think that sense of connection, yes, there's the, you know, friends, family, but in terms of talking through these issues, it may well be uh, someone that you access who's been through it. And the Beyond Blue website does offer peer support services, peer chats that I think people find very supportive and the evidence shows that they do make a difference to people. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's, I'm, I'm very happy to know that you're at the head there with all these, uh, all these um, causes going on, but none of them... Um, more relevant than they've ever been right here and right now. And I thank you for your work. And I thank you for really taking the time to let us know um, what you and the team are up to. And we look forward to sort of watching more of that. And will you be returning to Australia in the near future when you can to continue that work? Uh, I'm certainly uh, hoping to. I'm uh, very, uh, very much hoping to get back uh, later in the year. I want to be back to uh, see the Beyond Blue team, obviously, but more than anything else, I want to be back to uh, see family. So uh, fingers crossed that's all works. Um, I, uh, this is an unpredictable world, so uh, it pays to just uh, think about it as it comes and do what you can, but I am intending to come back later in the year. Oh, brilliant. Well, Julie, I know you're, you're a very busy lady and um, I would really like to thank you um, personally and professionally for coming on here and having these conversations and just being so authentic um, and so articulate and also just so insightful in so much um, of what you've provided to us today. And uh, if people want to um, get out there and hear and see more of you, um, that's not you popping up in the politics, but what you're actually getting <laughs> on doing in the real world, how, how is it best for people to, to find and engage and, and access your resources as well as Beyond Blues? 
Uh, well, certainly uh, to get on the Beyond Blue website is the, the best starting point. And then if people need the telephone support service, they'll be guided through to that. Uh, for me, uh, if people want to uh, follow uh, what I'm doing, uh, we regularly post on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook, and I've got my website. So they're the easiest ways to see what I'm up to next. <laughs> Gotcha. And like we're saying, you've got the uh, a podcast of one's own. You'll be continuing that? You are continuing yes, that? Yes, I will. Yeah, yes, I will. Uh, new, new episode coming out soon. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to uh, now following you with a bit of a, a renewed information of what's going on. And again, thank you so much for all that you have already done to our country. Thank you for your service. And I do mean that. Um, I highly enjoyed, again, from my first interactions through to subsequent and even now with you. And um, really appreciate uh, your time today on our podcast. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. And if you'd like to listen to more, head over to VOAV Podcast on all your favourite streaming outlets. If you'd like to watch more of these episodes, including this one when it's released, head over to the Voice of a Veteran account on YouTube. That is simply Voice of a Veteran on YouTube. For those who would like to follow more on uh, current veteran issues and particularly supporting our veterans, head over to vsf.org.au, vsf.org.au. That is our website now with resources supporting all veterans and family members. And if you would like to know more or get in contact with myself, please feel free to head to estonrussell.com or find me on social media. Thanks again and take care.